Welcome, everyone, to episode 120, Mending Injured Spines. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'm just so excited, Kiki, about everything in my life right now. I'm about to talk to this guy who's doing this first in human trial with his group, and I'm so thrilled. We're in a heady time, stem cell applications, and school is out. The kids are feeling it in the streets, and I'm vicariously living it up with them. <laughs> yeah, I wake up every once in a while, and I'm like, what? You know, the kids, they get to have summertime and they go and they play all day and I have to go to work. Where's my summer? Where's my summertime? But it's pretty outside. It's beautiful. It's getting warm. The birds are singing. The allergies Mm. are flowing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We have passed the solstice. That's right. It is long summer nights right now, everyone. And I hope that you are enjoying them. But right now, it's time for us to get down to our business of stem cells and science. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and also find all of our past episodes and other resources that we make available to you. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes automatically download to your phone. And we do have a great show today. In addition to all the latest science and stem cell news, we are talking with Dr. Joseph Siachi from the University of San Diego about the results of his phase one clinical trial transplanting stem cells into chronic spinal cord injury patients. This is big news. So I'm very excited. Huge, Kiki. This is huge huge news. Before we get to that, though. I mean, the roundup. We got to remind listeners, apropos to today's subject, about Neural Cell News. Neural Cell News covers the latest top research in the fields of neural development and neural regeneration, neural signaling, synaptic plasticity, all that good stuff. In addition, research into the diagnosis, progression, cellular characteristics, and the treatment of brain cancers and neural damage and diseases like Parkinson's or MS, Alzheimer's, ALS. The newsletter also covers industry news, events, and jobs in the neuroscience field. So subscribe for free, if you already haven't, to keep current with the neuroscience field at neuralcellnews.com. Get on the list, people. Boom. Get in there. And it is now time to round it up. And I'm going to jump on the train of these various neurodegenerative disorders that could be studied. People are studying Alzheimer's disease these days. And in a new study published this last week in Neuron, a researcher named Joel Dudley and his colleagues are talking about a link they've found between Alzheimer's disease and herpes virus infection. They searched through data sets for Alzheimer's disease vulnerabilities to exploit in creating a treatment when they discovered the correlation. People with Alzheimer's disease, many of the brains, have signs of herpes virus infection, but those from people with Alzheimer's disease have much higher levels of viral DNA than those from healthy people, according to their report. 
So the question has been for a while, there have been signs of this infection of viral load and this potential link. But this study really kind of doesn't close the story, but it does provide a much clearer link between infectious pathogens and the degenerative brain disease. Researchers have been looking at this, and another neurologist at Cleveland Clinic, James Leverens, says that herpes virus are so ubiquitous and that so many people carry them that uh, this is one reason for a controversy as to whether or not there's an actual link here. The researchers in this study in Neuron actually evaluated the brains of healthy individuals, those with preclinical Alzheimer's, which is pathology but no cognitive impairment, and later stage Alzheimer's disease. And they used computational modeling to look at the differences in gene expression networks. And so they were looking at various genes and viral RNA and DNA sequences. And they looked for also for the presence of genes associated with various viruses known to infect the human transcriptome. And by affecting the human transcriptome, thus transcription and neuronal behavior. They performed whole exome sequencing to look at the viral DNA in the brains, and they found basically elevated viral RNA and DNA levels. Uh, They found gene network drivers lost or gained in preclinical Alzheimer's were enriched for C2H2 zinc factor transcription factor binding motifs. And there were also more preclinical Alzheimer's disease drivers with more G quadruplex motifs within their genes. And this has been previously associated with viral biology and viral infection. Additionally, they found increased viral species in particular areas of the brain that are related and associated with Alzheimer's traits. They also looked at some knockout experiments in mice and found that some particular markers in these knockout mice had larger cortical amyloid plaques. And so the overall impact of this study is that it really does find this link. It gives real suggestive evidence. I'm not saying conclusive, (laughs) but it's much more suggestive than previous experiments in this link between viral infection, especially, specifically herpes virus infection and neurodegeneration. Yeah, people are going crazy about this in the news, right? Because it's a huge development, but I guess a lot of the debate is causation, right? They're saying, oh, it's just correlated, but we need to now show that there's causation. I guess subsequent studies will get at that. Yeah, I mean, the hard thing is, you know, you have to track people while they're still alive, you know, before herpes virus infection, post herpes virus infection, Mm. does infection lead to people developing this disorder? You know, can we actually show that? And, you know, you don't take living people and chop up their brains in the process. That's not like mouse experiments. So... (laughs) <laughs> or do you, Kiki? Or do, do you? you? Oh. Uh, no, you don't. You don't. That's right. No. Yeah, so this question will be outstanding for a, a bit longer, but this is a very interesting study in that step of kind of figuring out, you know, Alzheimer's is also, it's one of those may potentially catch-all diseases. It's a, a bunch of symptoms. The plaques could be triggered by a large number of stimuli. And so maybe viral infection is one of the things that leads to the neurodegeneration. 
In other news of trying to find these diseases and their causes and stop them before they get a foothold, researchers are currently developing, there's a study underway to catch diseases before they become pandemics. There's a pilot study known as PREDICT that's backed by the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. It has pinpointed more than a 1,000 viruses in animals that have the potential to infect humans. You know, right now, we know the big ones. You know, there's Ebola, there's Zika, there's HIV. There are a large number of these viruses that are out there circulating within animal populations. But the question is, which ones will make the jump? And how do you predict this? There is a paper that is currently out. A group of researchers in Nature this month aren't really in agreement with the uh, the PREDICT project's approach. This paper in Nature, led by Professor Edward Holmes of Sydney University, claims that its hopes of carrying out meaningful prediction of new pandemics were misguided. And he said they say there aren't enough data on virus outbreaks for researchers to be able to accurately predict the next outbreak strain, nor is there good enough understanding of what drives viruses to jump hosts, making it difficult to construct predictive methods. They argue in the Nature paper that even if it were possible to identify which viruses are likely to emerge in humans, thousands of candidates could end up being identified, each with a low probability of causing an outbreak. And so they propose, alternatively, that the screening of people who are exhibiting symptoms of a disease is a better approach to solving the problem. And that's when we should be tackling an emerging disease. On the other side, the group supporting this PREDICT project, argue that only responding to disease after an outbreak isn't acceptable. That's what we've been doing, and it's not working anymore. Eddie Rubin, who's chief scientist at biotechnology company Metabiota, says we make preparations against hurricanes and earthquakes. We need to do the same with diseases. We need to start to collect data and make predictions about where new outbreaks may occur. And according to Peter Dazak of the EcoHealth Alliance, they are about to start initial work in China and Thailand by studying bats, rodents, primates, and water birds there with an aim to find out as yet unknown viruses that could infect men and women and so pinpoint ways to protect them. This PREDICT group is aiming to boost the number of diseases that we have identified, the number of viruses that we are aware of, And by several orders of magnitude, because it is estimated that there are about 1.6 million yet-to-be-discovered viral species in animals. We have so far, as I said, identified, you know, a thousand or so. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, in light of that last thing you said, I'm with Holmes, who said that this may not be the right focus. Not that I know. I just think it's an interesting point. I was all about it. I was like, yeah, the reservoir. Yeah, the reservoir. I just think of it this way. Like when you think about the history of the major pandemic diseases, isn't it always like a story where it's like this exceedingly rare confluence, like this species was doing, or this guy ate a baboon in the bar somewhere. (laughs) Like it seems like some weird confluence of events had to lead to it for it to happen even in the first place. So that suggests that there's probably so many potential viruses out there that could, given the same confluence happens. So we're going to have so many false positives if we focus on the reservoir. 
I don't know that we have the resources to allocate. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds so massive. One point what billion? What? No, million. It's estimated oh, in the million. Million. in the millions. Right. Oh, well, in that case, then let's get right <laughs> to it. <laughs> Jump on it. It's totally fine. Something I'm jumping on this morning is drinking my third cup of coffee Yay. as I sit here recording this podcast with you. Well, there is a study out this last week about how drinking coffee may protect your heart. We do love these wonderful studies that suggest the things that we rely on aren't bad for us. And so this is a study published in PLOS Biology in which researchers gave mice the equivalent of four cups of coffee a day for 10 days and then induced heart attacks. <laughs> Here, we're going to make you drink a lot of coffee and be super stressed out, and then we're going to give you a heart attack. Cells in mice that got caffeine repaired the heart attack damage better than cells that did not get the caffeine. And what they think is going on here, according to this research, is that caffeine helps move a protein called P27 into mitochondria. Increasing P27 in the mitochondria increased their activity. Their energy production went up. That means, whoo, more ATP for the cells, right? It helped the heart cells recover from damage, according to the study. People also have P27, not just mice. And so this suggests even though we're not mice, that caffeine could be benefiting our hearts as well. P27 is normally found in the nucleus of cells, and it is part of the cell division process. But this new energy ATP-producing role for the mitochondria was not previously known. So molecular geneticist Joaquin Alkschmeid says the old doctor's warning that coffee isn't good for people with heart disease that's out for us, based on what we found. But, you know, this is a study on mice, not on people. We know all over the board that things that work in mice don't work so well in people, for whatever reasons. And just by drinking coffee, maybe you should also do some other things too, like eat well and exercise and try and have a healthy lifestyle. Maybe that would help also. Yeah, don't have a heart attack. Try not to have a heart attack. <laughs> It would be my first advice. Don't, don't let researchers induce heart attack in you. There you go. I think there must be like the coffee researcher mafia where they just take mice and they're like, let's <laughs> jack these mice up on coffee and then do stuff to them. <laughs> let's throw them out the window and we'll show that this mouse can survive a fall from 10 feet when he's jacked up on four. <laughs> That's right. Caffeine turns mice into spider men. <laughs> spider mice, spider mice. Oh, in other animal news, our best friend, the dog. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I don't have a dog. I have cats. But anyway, for many people, the dog is their best friend, a child surrogate. But researchers suggest that they also may be a reservoir for disease. It's true. 15% of pet dogs that went to the vet because of respiratory infections carried flu viruses that are often found in pigs, according to a report in MBio of dogs in China. The study looked at dogs swabbing the noses of 800 of them in the Guangxi region of southern China between 2013 and 2015. All of them had 
respiratory illnesses of one kind or another, hence probably why they were at the vet, but only 116 had flu viruses. The dogs had various swine, H1N1 viruses. They also had other strains as well. But the question now is the viruses, if they're being passed to dogs, could they then be passed to people? And so this isn't necessarily a cause for alarm, but this is a situation maybe that should be monitored, especially in areas of agriculture where dogs may be mixing with pig populations on the farm or with chicken populations on the farm and then going and interacting with humans. And so this is the kind of situation where if researchers and health officials are on it, then uh, vaccines, quarantine, and other infection control methods could limit outbreaks and keep these viruses from catching in humans. Yes, I am not at all surprised that dogs have a lot of diseases. Have you ever seen a dog and the way it behaves? <laughs> I, I have. Yes, I have. So it's not a big intuitive leap there. No. I mean, and then there's the, the other question of like maybe people have diseases and they go and they wipe their noses and then they pet their dogs. And so maybe uh -huh. and then somebody else goes and pets their dog. And so either way, Kiki, the, the dogs are the vector and we're not going to get rid of the people. So we're going to have right. to do something about these dogs. Do something about it. That's right. We're going to set them free. Let's set them free. <laughs> That's it for me. What do you have for, for our stem cell section of the roundup? I got a few stories. I got a few stories. We're talking first about cancer. So this is a study out of Dr. Xia Yi Lin's group at uh, MD Anderson at UT. And it's about like how cancer becomes cancer. So in the evolution of cancer, one of the first events, like the nucleating event, you could say, is this oncogene activation and the resultant induction of hyperproliferation. All right. So in normal cells, there's something called the replication stress response. So during S phase of replication, there's all these safeguards to ensure DNA integrity. And if it's not working out, these cells, the normal ones, will go to like apoptosis or senescence and they won't like go rogue, so to speak. So there's this replication stress response in a normal cell. But when there's defects in this replication stress response, you get hyperproliferation. And this can result in a nucleating event for tumor genesis. So what Lin's group did is they used system level approaches to kind of like identify a replication stress response defect signature, a the cohort of genes that deal with this replication stress response. If you look at them in an aggregate, there's a defect in the green signature. Lin's group showed that that was a really reliable uh, predictor of the risk of cancer development from hyperplastic lesions. Okay, so you have normal tissue, then you have a hyperplastic lesion, and that can result in cancer. It can progress to cancer. So looking at all these hyperplastic lesions, the ones that displayed the defect in the replication response were predictive of cancer formation. And what was interesting here is they found that it was kind of causal to the cancer transition, that when you had the replication stress response defect, that led to a rewiring of non-malignant, kind of pre-malignant cells into a bona fide 
cancer stem cell state or molecular profile. And when you looked at cancer stem cells that were already in play in a tumor, they inherently and fundamentally all showed a defect in this replication stress response. So that kind of in like the causation tree there, it's kind of like replication stress response defects precedes and can lead to the actual development of a full-blown tumor. Moreover, they show that this uh, whole process was dependent on MEC or ERK signaling, MEC slash ERK signaling, which is you know a pretty generic signaling pathway involved in a lot of cell proliferation. And if you inhibited this signaling cascade, you could take these precancerous lesions and restore the senescence, the oncogene-induced senescence that's in play in normal cells. So, and add to that, if you took cells that were already cancer stem cell populations and you inhibited the MECRC signaling in there, you could also reduce their proliferation and deplete those cancer stem cell populations. So it's a big deal because it not only gives like insight into like what leads to what in the evolution of a cancer, but it identified this like legit target, uh, MECRC signaling that could be used not only to target and preclude the transition from precancerous to full-blown cancerous lesions, but it could even be used to shrink tumors by targeting this cancer stem cell population. So a cancer story with a positive ending and a lot of implications, Kiki. Yeah, I mean, stuff related to targets that we can actually approach is always very exciting. I can't wait. Maybe we will be interviewing them soon related to a clinical trial. Yes, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. When these <laughs> things hit the papers, obviously this MECRC signaling inhibitor is probably already they're thinking about how to leverage this in humans. So we'll wait and see. won't be long. Yeah. Next, another kind of cancer-related story, but more about hematopoiesis. You know, I'm a sucker for hematopoiesis. This is about reconstitution more generic, but it has implications for cancer as well. It's a pretty simple story, but I think important. You know, there's been a million of these mechanisms, not a million, but a lot of the cellular, molecular, biophysical, who knows, mechanisms that kind of govern the retention of the hematopoietic stem cell in the bone marrow niche. You know, the bone marrow niche harbors these hematopoietic stem cells and mobilizes them, but they have to be retained in there in order to like, you know, maintain a healthy population throughout lifespan. And the, the factors that kind of anchor them there and keep them there have been extensively studied. And adhesion molecules, the anchorage molecules, that the ones that anchor the hematopoietic stem cell in the niche, have been also extensively studied, not only for that anchorage factor, keeping them there, but also because they have like a biological input that can actually modulate their functional status, you know, differentiation, self-renewal. So ICAM-1, intracellular adhesion molecule 1, it's been implicated in immune cell trafficking within the blood you know, hierarchy, but it hasn't been shown to play a role yet in hematopoietic stem cell reconstitution or anything like that up to now. So using a host of these classic transplant approaches, a Chinese group led by Hui Zhang and Ji Zhao, two groups, they showed that in the context of ICAM-1, or intracellular adhesion molecule 1 knockout, hematopoietic stem cells fail to be retained in the bone marrow. Uh, the ICAM-1 deficient mice said significant expansion of these hematopoietic stem cells like in circulation. 
So they were like mobilized into the circulation and they had reduced quiescence. So instead of hanging out in the bone marrow, they shot out into the peripheral blood and made the differentiated subtypes. And amongst those differentiated subtypes, they favored myeloid expansion instead of lymphoid expansion, which, you know, speaks to the bias in the immune reconstitution in the absence of ICAM-1. And although the ICAM-1 deficient HSCs, if, although the, the mice that were deficient for ICAM-1, they had a, this deficiency in HSCs, it wasn't dependent on ICAM deficient in the actual blood cells in the HSCs. If you transplanted them into a normal mice, that impairment was gone. But if you did the reciprocal, so taking normal blood cells into a knockout background, you had the defect again. So it looks like ICAM is necessary in the bone marrow to anchor hematopoietic stem cells. It's just another brick in the wall, Kiki. Pretty vanilla, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something. For a guy like me who loves the blood. You do. And you're like, anytime there's a hematopoietic stem cell story, yeah. you are all it over it. Put it on. I apologize. <laughs> vanilla is delicious to me. No, this ICAM, it doesn't taste like vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it tastes like. I don't want to know. But I bet it's good. I bet it's good. Good and bloody. So moving on. We're going to a big story out of the ISSCR. So Monash University researchers have restored movement and regenerated nerves using stem cells and zebrafish. Important to underline that where the spinal cord was severely damaged. This was presented at ISSCR in Melbourne this week, last week by the time this airs. And it provides insight into this physiological process in fish that a lot of people hope could be triggered in human patients who suffered paralyzing damage to their nervous system. Very appropriate for today's guest. And we may discuss it, we may not, because I don't like throwing fish stories at really clinical people and asking how relevant they are because they always say the same answer. Fish aren't humans, and we knew that. <laughs> but it's important. So this is Dr. Jan Kazan, who's from Monash University's Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute, ARMY, as it's called, pretty cool, used a zebrafish model for nerve regeneration. They, they, zebrafish, you know, they're these little fish, and they're like master regenerators. Everyone yeah. loves the fish because they can regenerate a lot of their tissues and organs following injury, including the heart. Uh, their fins, and they're also see-through. That's right. So you, so you can, you can watch see it. it. You can see it. It's like, wow. oh, <laughs> wow. So, I mean, scientists love it. I, for one, love imaging, <laughs> and most scientists like me, geeks that they are, get fascinated by visualizing biological processes, especially when they're, like, regenerative, right? Superhuman powers. Dr. Kazan and colleagues, they isolated a group of precursor cells and stem cells that very quickly colonize and regenerate the fish's spinal cord. Okay, so we're not talking about fins and hearts. This is next level when it's damaged. Using confocal and light sheet microscopy, so this is state-of-the-art imaging, high-resolution, deep tissue imaging. Dr. Kazan and colleagues are able to track and image the regeneration of living nerves in real time, allowing the first glimpse into how these cells move and how they behave and during this repair process. They've been able to watch and film pretty rapid. It takes as little as two days in a, in a larvae, but over the course of two to four weeks in the adult. So they've been able to visualize either short-term, long-term processes. And interestingly, they, they identify two waves. There's this 
initial wave where neural precursors migrate to the injury, which is like a first stage and quick recovery of movement. And then it's followed by this activation of stem cells in the periphery of the injury site. So it seems like it's this multifactorial cell intrinsic, also paracrine effect. And the hope obviously is that by studying genes and molecules involved in the recruitment of these stem cells, you may be able to like mobilize this latent process in humans. But that's, I think, a major challenge. And, you know, it's going to take a long time to work out. But it's good. Yes. It's good. The cell regeneration, spinal cord injury studies. I mean, we are going to be repairing things. Right. And, I would have uh, never thought. I would have said, because, you know, me, I'm such a cynic. Yeah. But, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, I would have said, yeah, the spinal cord is probably the least likely. Because I don't know why I thought that, but I did. And now they're doing it. <laughs> awesome. Fix it. Fix it. Fix it. Anyway, so now on to another kind of neuron pandering to the neural mafia. Thank you. You got it. <laughs> so this is a study. I had to do it also because it was my man and former mentor during my PhD who's on fire right now. We just talked about his other story, I think, in last episode. Now he's another one. It's in Cell Stem Cell. It's about modeling neural development in a specific type of neuron that's uh, in the brain. And this is called the deep projection neuron. So the, the ratio of these projection neurons are important because the ratio of them is altered in neurodevelopmental disorders that have been linked to like schizophrenia and intellectual disability. And very recent studies have strongly implicated these deep projection neurons in autism. So they're gaining a lot of attention. So we want to be able to get these cells and model these types of pathological processes. But you know, the brain patterning, fate specification, cell proliferation, all intertwine in this elaborate dance, you know, that's difficult to recapitulate in a dish and difficult to understand even, you know, when you're looking at it native, it's hard to access in a mouse because they got little mouse brains, even primates, you know, we're talking about higher order processes that are unique to humans. So getting a hold of the specific cell types is a real challenge. Now, a lot of studies have been using organoids. We talked about a lot of these to get specific structures, but most of these, maybe all of these, fail to develop the subplate, okay? And this is a specific type of tissue from which arises these deep projection neurons, a subplate. And either you can't get it in these brain organoids or the diversity of cell types inclusive of subplate has not been characterized or not been predictively shown or consistently in reliably uh, been shown to be generated in these organoids. So Dr. Bribonlu and his group, they got around this, and I'm going to kind of undersell it because it was a tour de force of a lot of assay here, and it's very complicated. I'm already in out of my depth here. The bottom line is they tried to figure out how to get these cells by going to the brain, which Ali's famous for doing. He goes to the actual embryo. In this case, he was taking brains from week 11 to 19 aborted fetus and modeling step-by-step step the evolution of fate within these neural subtypes. And then he modeled his human pluripotent stem cell system by using transgenic lines and markers. He modeled that same step-by-step step differentiation 
And they were able to not only generate the, the subplate-like neurons in vitro that are like the precursors of the deep projection neurons, and they were a spot-on match expressing all the molecular and you know, cellular characteristics of those cells. But unexpectedly, they got those in vitro to generate a ton of, with high efficiency, deep projection neurons rather than undergoing programmed cell death, which is what they typically do even in the brain. A lot of these precursor subplate neurons die, but in vitro, they were able to get massive amounts of them to get these deep projection neurons. They were able to get important subtypes that are going to be relevant to disease modeling. And they also identified a role for Wnt signaling in regulating the fate choice between a specific corticofugal and intracortical projection neurons from these subplate neurons. So it's a lot of neurons, okay? You know me, I'm blind to all the billions of <laughs> neuron subtypes. But like, I think the important thing to understand is there's all this action in the brain to set up higher order thinking and functioning and neural you know, stability that manifests only, or instability that may manifest only late in life. And all these subtypes, and more importantly, their connectivity needs to be modeled in vitro. And this projecting cell type that uh, Ali and his group have identified could be an important step along the way. Keeks and I'm out. All right. Yeah. Trying to figure out before the degeneration happens, where are these neurons coming from? What are the things that make them become what they are? And like you said, you know, these deep projection neurons, these are really important throughout the brain for cognition, for brain functioning. And so when they go wrong, you know, behaviorally things are, are a mess for people. So let's figure out the underpinnings. And it sounds like your man, Ali, he's on it. On it. Not only insight into the, you know, the cell biology there, but, you know, yeah. these are always, I feel, the forerunner. They make this, the story like, we get this cell, and then you see a whole raft of studies that are doing, like, the disease modeling or, like, drug screening, the yeah. things that build on the tool to really actually establish some more translational relevance. So I'm waiting for that from Ali. Uh, we got to get him on the show. Ali, I'm extending an invitation. I'll give you a call later. <laughs> Let's make it happen. All right, everyone. So we have made it through our roundup. And before we get to the interview, let me just let you know that the Stem Cell Technologies Neural Stem Cell Wall Chart provides an overview of how neural stem cells can be derived, cultured from various tissue sources, and differentiated into specific neuronal and glial subtypes. Speaking of those subtypes that you just mentioned. The wall chart also outlines opportunities for neural stem cell-based therapies. This wall chart was created in partnership with Nature Neuroscience and was co-authored by Clive Svensson. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get their free copies at stemcell.com slash get NSC wall chart. That's NSC for neural stem cell. So stemcell.com slash get NSC wall chart. Hang it on your wall and share it with your whole lab. And now time for our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Chachi, Professor and Residency Program Director in the UCSD Department of Neurosurgery. He is the Principal Investigator on a study published in Cell Stem Cell detailing the results of a Phase one clinical trial using stem cells to treat chronic spinal cord injury. Dr. Chachi, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to be here. I am so glad that we are able to have you join us today. 
You're joining us from the OR. So you are immersed in in your business of helping people right now. But can you give us a little background about yourself and how you came to be a neurosurgeon and a spinal cord surgeon? It's a long story. I'm not sure how much time you have, but I'll, I'll summarize it real quick. I'll blame my mom because I told her I wanted to be a scientist. And she said, well, scientists don't make any money. You, you better be a doctor. She didn't realize it was kind of the same thing. I had to maintain my real desire to be a scientist and a surgeon and, and combine those two. And so, you know, learning surgery is consuming and it's very exciting. But beyond that, it's really the science that is the most interesting. And I feel like the way to make the biggest contribution. Because even if I operate every single day as much as I can, and I try to do that, there's a limited number of people I can reach. But in advancing, you know, the science and the specialty, that can really extend the reach to everyone if we can make some advances. So I developed my interest in surgery and maintained my interest in science. And uh, I'm working really hard to put the two together. Yeah, you know, one of uh, my uh, most valued mentors, who is a clinician, said to me a time, uh, the difference between a good doctor and a great doctor is a good doctor helps a lot of patients. A great doctor helps all patients by moving the field forward. I think you found the sweet spot there by doing brain surgery. Hello. I don't know how you're not making money, my man, but maybe we need to get you on the in, out in the field. But also, you know, you're doing this major cutting edge. These are really heady times for stem cell science in general and how we're getting it into the clinic. So can you give us brief, although, you know, worthy of the impact description of this really innovative study that you just came out with in Cell Stem Cell? Well, no, I appreciate that question because when you're doing something every day, you lose sight of how unique it is. And bringing stem cells in a legitimate, scientifically thoughtful way to patients is a long road and a hard road, but it's just really exciting that we've, we've been able to do that. And the way we did it is by doing real science. We did a lot of animal studies and all kinds of basic science that's outlined, you know, briefly in the paper that we just published and went through all the proper IRBs and FDA and all that stuff. And we got it to the point where we knew that we had come up with a good plan. And the surgery part, that was where all the training and all the years of doing complex surgery came in because no one had ever actually injected these types of stem cells or, or any, for that matter, in this way into the actual parenchyma of the spinal cord, meaning the actual substance of the nervous parts, the, the neural elements of the spinal cord. It was very challenging to get that through, you might imagine, and I think you can imagine that based on the way you asked the question so well. But we persisted, we pushed through, we demonstrated that we were very thoughtful about it and that you know patients were our main concern, respecting the fact that these are people who are already devastated and we want to bring them through something safely. So our main accomplishment in getting to do this is that we have demonstrated that something so precise and so novel, first in human essentially, is doable and it's safe. And hopefully that'll convince a lot of other people to take this on. Because you'd imagine as an established surgeon or researcher or both, you take a lot of risk if you take on a study like this. Because there's a whole number of groups of people that want to see something bad happen in stem cell research. You know, they're against it for so many different reasons, and they want to paint it in a negative light. But it's, it's such a positive thing. So if we can do something like this and show that it's safe, and even show that it's impacting a little bit, but a positive outcome, 
that's really great. So I feel like we're going to inspire people to work on stem cell research even more and especially inspire clinicians to take a chance. And if you do it in the right way, it's going to be an unlimited yield, I think. So that's kind of how I see it, is not just the value of this particular study, but hopefully contributing to the field in terms of inspiring people and showing people that you can do it and you can do it safely and you can do it in a really thoughtful way without becoming hopefully the target of all the negative folks. You mentioned it. These are patients who had their lives devastated by spinal cord injury. They had a chronic injury so that their cords had been damaged for over a year, maybe two years with no recovery or limited recovery. And this was also a phase one trial. So like you said, you've demonstrated the safety. But can you talk a little bit about the methodology? Like where do the stem cells come from and what kind of a process is it to take those stem cells and put them into the parenchyma of the spinal cord? And then, you know, for the three out of the four patients who did see some benefits, what did they see? You know, I'm asking a lot of questions here, but what happened? No, I, these are things that are wonderful to talk about. So that's, that's a great question. Thank you. So essentially the cells, it's a cell line, and that's something really important for people to understand. In other words, this is a, it's a spinal cord fetal-derived spinal cord cell, but it's a cell line that's been, you know, grown and maintained over years. So, you know, there's no harvesting or or any of those types of things that people worry about. It's just basically a a lab with a cell line that's ongoing and has been cultivated over time. And those cells are, you know, processed in a very specific way. But once we've had those cells, we were able to do all the animal studies that it took to show some safety and also efficacy. And that allows you to go through the process of getting what we call IRB approval and FDA approval to go to human. And then you have to have a plan of how you're actually going to deliver this. And that's probably the most interesting part of it. You have to uh, sort of develop instruments to be able to deliver it precisely. So we have sort of a stereotactic frame. It's like XYZ coordinates with fine control. and, And there are images of that in the publication that you can see. And then there's a, what we call a floating cannula, which is a really micro needle attached to a plastic tube, which is attached off the field to a micro injector. That little micro needle is delivered right into the spinal cord parenchyma. And we have some great videos of that. I don't know if you've gotten to see those, but I'm happy to share them. They're really nice videos showing how that's all done under the microscope with magnification and illumination. And then, you know, there's the delivery of the cells and slowly over a period of time with direct observation. And once we get all the injections done, and we did six in each patient, then, you know, we basically close up just like we would any other surgery. And and there's a really detailed follow-up for each of these patients with exams and electrophysiology and objective measures like MRI. And that's the last part of your question, which is, what was the positive that we did see? So always emphasizing that the number one positive is that we demonstrated it was feasible and safe. And there were no adverse events that were significant. No one had any loss of neurologic function. But there were some positives in the sense that there were some sensation and also voluntary control of muscles in sort of the chest wall and paraspinal and abdominal regions. And those are subtle things. It's not like someone dramatically getting up and walking because there's a long way to go from a thoracic level. The axons and stuff have to grow and they grow very slowly but they're still positive. And there was electrophysiologic evidence as well showing changes in innervation based on objective electrophysiology data 
at those levels. And so it's very promising. You know, you always try not to get too excited, but it's very promising. At least I think it will allow us to continue. And in fact, I can share with you that because of this, we've been able to start a cervical spine cohort for complete cervical spine injuries. And we've already done one patient and that's gone well. It's been a couple months now, again, without adverse events. Too early to tell, but in the cervical region, the distance that the axons and neurons and stuff have to regenerate is a little shorter with a much more obvious, meaningful change if it were to happen. So you can imagine the difference between a single level in a cervical spinal cord injury is uh, something that could change the ability of you to bring your hand to your face. And if you think about that activity and how significant that would change your life, if you went from not being able to bring your hand to your face to being able to, you could feed yourself hygiene, all kinds of things. And both of you have your hands at your face right now. It's just something that's really important. This is such a great story as you're, you're talking about here because of the inspiration. And I think you touched on that earlier is that there's two sides of this. It's inspiring the next generation of scientists, showing the feasibility, but also kind of setting the roadmap in terms of like the administrative and oversight and technical methodology, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, I think what's reading the paper, I think what is lost on probably most of the people that read this paper is a whole second act. After the discussion, the detailed methods are very elaborate. And there's a lot of specific criteria, I think, that are important to mention. Like you have three different cell banks that you draw on, a master cell bank, a working and an actual clinical use cell bank. All these details, do you think that's the standard that all the, the uh, researchers coming after will follow? Because uh, did you get that from like the FDA? Who served up those specific criteria? And is that, if I, looking at your paper, if I wanted to follow you, would it be safe for me to do exactly as you've done in order to get a favorable FDA response? Not that I'm going to do this, by the way. I'm far, far away from your field. But, you know, just in terms of the people who follow you that really bring this to the next level, including your subsequent studies, what's the move there? Those observations are very astute. So uh, you're a humble man. You probably know a lot more than you let on, and I appreciate that. But I'm humble, too. It's hard for me to say. But I have to say that my hope is that we have demonstrated a sort of a roadmap or a plan that researchers can follow showing that it is difficult, but if you go through it in a thoughtful way and maybe use some of the steps that we used, you can get to a clinical trial injecting stem cells despite the change in, I think hopefully it will provide an example for people to follow and to, to take their time. If you think about, it's about 10 to 15 years of work to get to the clinical trial, and then it's been about four years of meticulously collecting the data. And you may imagine that I've been pressured over those four years to talk about it a lot, to, you know, make claims and, and share things. And I've been really respectful of the science and the scientific method in the hopes of getting a publication like we did, because I think once that happens, then you can talk about it, because really that's something that people can follow. You know, the method's kind of laid out. And I'm always happy to share intimate details with anyone who wants to research stuff like this or even wants to think about ideas. So hopefully, you know, people will reach out and I'm happy to help them. And I can share with you that I've been contacted by several different companies and research groups 
that are thinking about doing things and they want to, you know, learn from my experience. And I'm happy to do that. I mean, that that's really what it's all about. If I can get five or six different groups working on, on things with stem cells, that'd be great. It absolutely would be. And so after a phase one trial for safety, are you now moving into larger? I mean, you're moving into the cervical trials that you're doing, but what comes next in the process of really getting this approved and to become a regular method of therapy? Well, that's going to take a while, but I'm going to keep working on it. I feel like it's a worthy effort. We have to finish the phase one, which will be the cervical patients. And then we're going to probably do dose escalation because I think everyone would probably agree that more cells is going to be a better way to get a better, more meaningful result once we show that it's safe. So we'll probably go to dose escalation and then into phase two, hopefully. And once efficacy is demonstrated very clearly in phase two trials, then there is a reasonable hope that it can become a treatment that would be available to everyone who needed it. And that's one of the hard parts. You didn't ask about it, but it makes me think about one of the hard parts of doing a trial like this is hundreds, if not more people contacting me all the time because they have spinal cord injuries and, you know, they're devastated and there's really nothing for them. But right now they have to be excluded because of very strict criteria. So I'm in a hurry to get it to everybody. So I keep all their information. I try to give them a little bit of hope. And uh, sooner the better if we can get it out to people. And it'll be beyond complete spinal cord injuries. I mean, you know, if you think about it, regenerating any nerve can have a lot of impact, even peripheral nerve, all kinds of things. I mean, I have a million ideas. That's uh, hard to balance, but I'm working on it. Just explicitly talk, I mean, we haven't explicitly stated what these cells are, and I think it's worth mentioning at this point because in scaling it to uh, clinical practice, I think it's more feasible because what we're talking about is uh, neural stem cells that are derived from aborted fetus. And it seems like, based on your banking, that you can get billions of these cells. Am I way off there? But either way, they can be expanded to multiple passages. I think you went out to passage 9 or 12, I'm not sure, but many doublings. So it seems like you can apply them to a broader group of patients. You don't have to be, you know, one-off for every IPS-style trial where that patient's cells need to be converted. And you can also create like a bank. I know in this study it was HLA typing. So two questions. One, do you think you could scale it? And if so, like how many patients do you think you could treat with an effective dose? Not knowing what that is, mind you. I know back of the envelope. So how many patients do you think you could treat from one cell bank, so to speak? And if so, would that be based on like a HLA type thing, like a cord blood type system that we have today for hematopoietic cells? It's impossible to really know how many because the evolution is ongoing in terms of the processing and magnifying and multiplying and all. But I think it's definitely enough to treat many patients, even just at the current state. But I feel like it will advance. And I feel like ultimately, as we become more sophisticated in the, the basic science part of it, we may be able to, you know, even induce cells that are your own. And that's an ultimate goal that everybody would go crazy for, you know, and we're working on stuff like that. I don't think we'll be limited in the number of patients we can treat as long as we demonstrate safety and efficacy and do it in a sort of a 
slow pace, respecting the, the scientific methods. I don't feel we'll be limited in that sense. Do you have any idea of the mechanism that by which these cells might be leading to this nerve regeneration, to the reconnection where there is a damage or a split in the nerve? I mean, previous studies have shown, you know, you can have, you can dope a track for nerve growth with certain molecular factors for growth factors that lead the nerve to extend and grow and reach out to reconnect. Do you think these stem cells are like glial cells turn into glial cells or some or myelin that might be supporting the growth? Or do you think that, do you have any ideas? Yes, some ideas. This particular cell line, you know, has demonstrated the ability to regenerate axons and also some of the cells that create the sheath that you refer to. And then there's also most likely some growth factor issues. Not ready to say exactly how all of that is working, especially in the human trials, because tracking the cell growth and getting those really nice pictures that we have in animal studies is difficult for obvious reasons. We're not harvesting that tissue to be able to stain it and things like that. What we're trying to do is develop imaging modalities that allow us, you know, to sort of demonstrate that better. And I think as as that evolves, I'll be able to give you uh, next time we talk, hopefully, some more detailed answers about what exactly is happening in a person. I think in the animal, we have really good data, and we, I think it, you know, obviously the editors agreed. It's not a stretch to sort of extrapolate that animal data into most likely what's happening in the human with regeneration of axons and remyelination and sort of filling in of those cavities, but, you know, have to be straight. I don't have a picture of that yet, but I think that's happening. But I guess there is that you can continuously monitor the outcome for these patients in terms of restored function. Is that, do you expect that you've reached like peak restoration given the cell contribution or the amount of cells you use? Or is there a chance that these patients will continue to improve with, you know, the years to come? Well, so we will follow them for years and years, you know, and uh, there's a reasonable expectation that if the cells remain viable, that there will be continued growth. And if there's continued growth, there'll be improvement. And with the cervical, we just started. And so I'm actually super excited about that. You know, cervical is more difficult because it's more risky. It's more dangerous. And if you were to lose function at that level, it's much more devastating to the patient. But also the promise is greater. So it's like everything else in life, you know, a little bit extra risk, but a little better reward. So we're going to follow it for a long time, and I'm going to stay optimistic on that. As far as the risks that you're talking about, I mean, is that just a side effect of, you know, the surgical procedure itself? Or is it a, would it be an actual effect of the stem cells and how they interact with the nerves that are there? Or, you know, is with a lot of stem cell stuff, there's the risk of tumor growth. So are you, is that an additional risk that we're considering? Right. I feel like we've studied the tumor issue pretty well with these cells and these types of patients. So we're not super concerned about that. I think the main increase in the risk doing the cervical spine is the actual injection itself into the cervical spine because it's just a more sort of sensitive injection. And also, the as I mentioned a little bit ago, if there's a change for the worse neurologically at the cervical level, the much more significant thing. At the thoracic level, you know, if you lose sensation from your belly button all the way up to your nipple line, that's very significant, but you can still do 
many of the things that you do, your upper extremities will be maintained and all that. With cervical spine, you know, you're talking about upper extremity function and respiratory function because the high cervical controls your breathing. And that's like, so you, everyone thinks about the Christopher Reeve thing, right? So mm -hmm. you're on a ventilator, so that changes your life expectancy dramatically and complicates it. And so we're very careful in that area because we don't want to create someone's ventilator dependency by your intervention that was meant to help them. So that's what, that, those are the kind of technical parts of the intervention that are, that are more risky. Right. We talk about, uh, you know, do no harm, I, I guess. You were kind of on that track. We should remind ourselves as scientists, I have to remind myself all the time, what we're going after here is humans, right? First in human trial, this is what this was. And uh, all, I think, scientists dream of having their innovation be in humans. It's not about the money. It's having something that you thought of be applied to help people in humans. You're in this amazing position to do that and actualize that. But it's interesting in this case because it's not like a fix. They're giving these patients hope, but it's phase one. And, you know, I wonder, they come out of that trial with a hope that they're going to have improved function, but then it doesn't happen immediately or it doesn't happen enough and they're disappointed. Can you talk to us a little about, like, the highs and lows of dealing with the human beings at the end of this? That is the end of the day, what it's about. And uh, it is a grave responsibility. You know, we're essentially talking about how do you get real informed consent for a trial like this? How do you really have a patient and family understand that they may not themselves get benefit from this? The classic way of talking about that is that you try to help them understand that they, regardless of their individual results in terms of gaining function, they are helping the outcome eventually for all patients who suffer the same fate. And they're contributing, just like the surgeon and the researcher, to the advancement of the field and the advancement of the therapeutic options for people who are going through and will go through the same things that they're going through. And I feel like that, you know, that really helps people feel good about it to a certain point. But yes, they're always hoping that they're going to get the positive result and, and they're going to get better and, and it's going to restore their function. And there's always that sense of disappointment. You know, you get really close to these people. You think about years and years of being with them and their families and the things that they go through. There are definitely ups and downs in the patients and in the researchers. But if we all think about the fact that what we're doing takes a long time and it took us 15 years to get here. And if, if we would have known that we would have been this far in 15 years, we would have gladly done it. So thinking 10, 15 years in the future, I'm going to say it's going to be worth it. And these patients will still be around and they'll get to see not only their own benefit, but that they've benefited the field, even just the publication of this paper and their contribution to it. If you give someone meaning when they're going through hard times and they feel like they've lost control of certain aspects, if you make them feel like they're contributing, I feel like that helps the positive outlook. So as we're getting to the end of our interview here, we always ask our guests on the show one of three questions. It's usually intended to stimulate conversation about life as a scientist or to provide advice, encouragement, or reassurance to young scientists who are out there embarking on their path. So our question to you, what did we decide, Dalen? Worst science blunder? No, <laughs> no, no gonna... that wouldn't be very appropriate <laughs> not appropriate at this point 
We'd love to know if you hadn't chosen science as a career, what would you have done and why would you have done it? Uh, they make me think about my like high school yearbook, you know, because <laughs> I think that was like one of the questions. And, and I, I think about that all the time. And so I said, I'll either be a, a scientist or a musician. And I think it's the creative process that's appealing to me. And I've sacrificed a lot of my musical ability by dedicating myself to science. So every time I look at my piano, I'm a little bit embarrassed. Because if you ever played any musical instrument and you were pretty good at it at one time and then you sort of don't practice, you can't even touch it. Because it'd be like, well, I used to be good at surgery, but I haven't done it for 10 years. So let me do an operation today and see how that goes. <laughs> you know? So I think music, you know, I still enjoy music. I still mess around every once in a while. But I think I would have dedicated myself to creativity in music. And the world would be all the poorer, I'm afraid, in spite of your talent, my friend. No, I hear you. I hear you. you. We're very glad, and I'm sure many other people are, that you chose science as a career and clinical practice as your main focus, because from where we started coming back full circle, you are helping people and not just a couple of people. You are advancing the field. So thank you for your time today and thank you for your work and good luck in everything that you do moving forward. No, it's, it's been a great pleasure, and, and thank you for that positive sort of conclusion. I mean, I, I feel like I've missed out never talking to you guys before. You guys are great. It's been really a very, very pleasant and stimulating conversation. So I hope that we get to talk again sometime. Maybe I'll do something worthy of a, another conversation. I'll keep working on it. Awesome. Do something so we can invite you back. I'm looking forward to it also. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode. Everyone, that concludes episode 120 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. 